It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, July 24, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here with more recommendations for the week ahead. Today, I'll be discussing some of the gangster films of Martin Scorsese, as well as a brand new Netflix documentary about the decline of the mob in New York City, in addition to a program of Carl Reiner comedies coming up this week on Turner Classic Movies. Music librarian Farah Mohammed is here, and she's going to be speaking about International Self-Care Day. While self-care may bring visions of mani-pedis, deep tissue massages, or lounging poolside sipping exotic drinks, it's really just the important practice of checking in with yourself and asking yourself what you need to feel your best on any given day. Here is Stephen Tomlinson with TV and Movie Recommendations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I'll be discussing some of the gangster films of Martin Scorsese, as well as a brand new Netflix documentary about the decline of the mob in New York City in addition to a program of Carl Reiner comedies coming up this week on Turner Classic Movies. But first, movie theaters, the summer release schedule, and the future of theatrical exhibition. This week, Warner Brothers again delayed the release of Christopher Nolan's $300 million budgeted sci-fi thriller, Tenant, originally scheduled for early July. Initially, it had been moved to July 31st and again to August 12th, but now, as of this week, there is no new release date announced at all, due to uncertainty over when U.S. cinemas might reopen. Tenet, spelled T-E-N-E-T, for those of you unfamiliar with it, has been hailed for weeks as a key release to revive cinemas worldwide after the coronavirus shutdown. Nolan himself, the filmmaker best known for his trilogy of Batman movies, as well as Dunkirk, Inception, and Interstellar, has long been a champion of the cinema-going experience and is understood to be keen to ensure the tenant does not break the traditional theatrical release window by going directly to streaming or video on demand. Both he and Warner Brothers had also been reported recently to have turned down a proposal that tenant be released outside the U.S. first, in territories where cinemas have already reopened. However, What's new is that the Warner Brothers statement this week implied that their position on an earlier international release may be changing, saying that the studio is, and I'm quoting here, not treating Tenant like a traditional global day and date release, and our upcoming marketing and distribution plans will reflect that. End quote. That phrase a global day and date release, is a film industry term indicating the opening of a movie everywhere in cinemas on the same day, 
which has been the dominant Hollywood model of theatrical exhibition for decades now, all in an effort to both combat video piracy and make the most of simultaneous marketing and promotion, as well as perhaps to avoid the more recent obsession with avoiding plot spoilers. Tenet's immense budget is also the reason that both it and other likely summer blockbusters, most of which have already been moved to much later in the year, such as the new James Bond movie No Time to Die, Disney's Mulan, though still scheduled for August 21st, though no one actually believes that will happen, and Wonder Woman 1984, will not likely be released directly to streaming services or video on demand, where they would have little chance of recouping their vast investments, not to mention making hundreds of millions of additional dollars. And that's why studios are committed to holding over their very biggest movies, even waiting a further year or more if necessary, in order to ensure a theatrical release. But the possible change to the global day-and-date theatrical model of distribution, as indicated in that Warner Brothers statement this week, follows increasing complaints and growing resentment by non-U.S. distributors and cinema operators all over the world, but especially in Western Europe, that their industries will be crippled by Hollywood's continued waiting on American cinemas, whose reopening plans have mostly been upended by the ongoing pandemic. An unnamed UK executive told Variety this week that it feels like it has been completely forgotten that Hollywood blockbusters can earn up to 70 to 75% of their money outside the United States. Another executive, Tim Richards, CEO of multiplex chain View International, is quoted as saying, we can't thrive again as an industry without a concerted effort on the major Hollywood releases. While the managing director of CGR Cinemas, France's second biggest multiplex chain, is also quoted as saying, it will be a catastrophe if Mulan and Tenant are further delayed. We don't know how long we can hold up like this. End quote. And alarmingly, most alarmingly, yet another industry executive is quoted in The Guardian this week as saying, if the exhibition community doesn't have any new movies in the next few months, by which he means blockbusters, there will not be an exhibition community, quote-unquote. For example, in France, where all the country's theaters reopened the week of June 22nd, the box office has been stagnating at about 35% of its usual July admissions, despite a steady stream of relatively popular domestic fare. So, as far as they're concerned, the big Hollywood releases are absolutely necessary. We've been sticking to it against all odds, says that managing director of CGR Cinemas, because we don't want people to forget about us. But we don't know how long we can hold up like this. One American source quoted by Variety has said that if Warner Brothers and Disney were facing a scenario in which both Europe and Asia open first with Tenet and Mulan, followed by openings in the U.S. a couple of weeks later, they would do it every day of the week. 
The problem is they don't know when the U.S. market is going to open up again. And they're not comfortable going more than two weeks due to the inevitable problem of video piracy. Now, this figure of 70 to 75% of total box office coming from overseas markets, meaning everywhere outside of the U.S. and Canada, uh, these things always factor Canada is basically a territory of the U.S. Um, that 70 to 75% figure is especially relevant and indicative of the continually growing importance of the rest of the world in relation to North America. Whereas about 30 years ago, that figure was at about a 50-50 share of total box office figures, with, with most Hollywood films being released at that time, first in the U.S. and Canada, before making their way elsewhere, often only months later on. So it would be truly surprising, even revolutionary, to see this traditional um, day and date release model overturned with blockbusters released first in Europe and Asia, even if only on a temporary basis. And so it's understood to be why Hollywood studios are reluctant to go ahead with this, uh, if only because of a loyalty and support for their domestic partners. The theater chains depended upon them. Perhaps also because they don't want to set a precedent, and maybe too because of their fear of a domestic psychological blow that might be brought about in the context of America's shrinking global dominance in general, especially in relation to China, where theaters have mostly reopened. But I think that that later, that latter aspect is really looking at the big picture of things. But, you know, why should the rest of the world have to wait, including Montreal, by the way, where about one third to one half of all cinemas have reopened? Though, like elsewhere, um, at least in an English speaking context, um, all of these open theaters, uh, all of these recently reopened theaters are entirely reliant on older movies, re-releases, and a few modestly budgeted newer ones produced before the pandemic shut down production in Hollywood. Now that's just not a sustainable business model for movie theaters anywhere. And it seems Hollywood might be coming around to that idea. Why wait? if this week's press release from Warner Brothers about Tenet is anything to go by. I mean, reasons for traditionally synchronizing release dates globally, such as minimizing piracy and coordinating marketing, hardly seem like priorities given present circumstances. And in any case, the longer the America First principle remains, the worse things get for everyone. Cinemas and their related businesses, Hollywood itself, and moviegoers too, of course. Though one must wonder that even where cinemas have reopened, just how much business are they going to do? At least in the short term, given ongoing fears regarding the pandemic. I mean, I haven't ventured into a movie theater yet. Have you? You know, there's an interesting brand new documentary this week on Netflix entitled Fear City 
New York versus the Mafia, which tells the story of how the U.S. federal government brought down the notorious five families of the city, or at least dealt them a major blow from which they've never really recovered. Now, anyone familiar with the Godfather films, Martin Scorsese movies, or The Sopranos, will have some context for all this. That federal government authorities investigating New York City gangsters in the 1970s and 80s had a problem. The big bosses all seemed untouchable. The street crimes that could lead to prosecution were committed by low-level foot soldiers, which is, by the way, very well documented in Martin Scorsese's 1973 breakout movie, Mean Streets. But the mob's code of silence, omerta, always protected the upper ranks. So consequently, the notorious real-life five families that had run the New York mob since the Prohibition era, the Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese families, strengthened their grip on the city with their influence ensconced in key industries like high-rise construction, garment manufacturing, and restaurants, as well as, of course, the illegal drug trade. All the while, crime in New York in the 70s and 80s was skyrocketing amid high unemployment, a shrinking tax base, and cuts in social services. And law enforcement itself was completely overwhelmed. Both this ominous era, whose general milieu is probably best conveyed, by the way, in Scorsese's own non-gangster movie, Taxi Driver, from 1976, and the effort of FBI agents to dismantle the mafia, are the subject of this three-part documentary series from Netflix. But what the series doesn't seem to acknowledge, unlike so many Scorsese films themselves, is how much that crime would go corporate and become, in doing so, legitimate. What the documentary does show is the turning point in the investigation of the upper echelons of the five families, which happened in an unlikely place, Cornell University, where a law professor, G. Robert Blakey, counseled FBI investigators who had grudgingly been sent to him in 1980 for a week-long crash course into a then-arcane law that Blakey had helped to draft a decade before. That law, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, which became known as RICO, went into effect in 1970. Essentially, in the words of writer Greg Hanlon, it allowed for the prosecution of crimes performed as part of a criminal organization, thus closing a loophole that meant high-ranking gangsters were always able to evade charges. But the problem had been that law enforcement didn't really understand the law well enough to make use of it. That's why Blakey's seminar at Cornell was so important. By the end of their week with him, New York's FBI agents left with a weapon they hadn't known they had, and were now able to focus their work in a way that targeted the upper echelon of the mafia. Electronic surveillance was a vital part of that effort, including the bugging of homes and cars of mob bosses and providing hours of footage of mobsters in both intimate and work settings. And some of those recordings are featured here in this documentary. Now that emphasis on undercover work gives the film at times the feel of something akin to a caper movie. Yes, it is a documentary, but for example, in one recreated scene, an undercover agent 
posing as the cable TV repairman, gains entry into the home of Gambino family crime boss Paul Castellano after creating interference on Castellano's television. The agent then inserts a bug into Castellano's TV, which, among other revelations, would expose that Castellano was having an affair with his housekeeper. But in general, surveillance allowed the FBI to piece together the criminal structure of the five families and capture incriminating statements from key players on tape. The entire series then culminates in 1986 with the Mafia Commission trial, which led to eight convictions of top mob people, including the bosses of three of the families, but not Castellano himself, who, though indicted, uh, was famously murdered before going to trial on the orders of Mafia boss John Gotti. That Mafia Commission trial, by the way, was prosecuted by a then U.S. attorney with political ambitions, Rudy Giuliani, maybe you've heard of him, which sent the five families into a steep decline and which even saw some of their power siphoned off to organized crime in Montreal, though the documentary doesn't get into that. But according to the series, by breaking the power of the mob, New York City became a very different place by the 1990s and one very different from what it had been in the era of mean streets and taxi driver. With both a booming financial sector and real estate market, the city was now on firmer financial ground after having been left for dead a decade before. Whereas the five families still exist today, they're not nearly as well organized as they used to be, or nearly as big. That's Fear City, New York versus the Mafia, now available to stream on Netflix. You know, while watching Fear City, I was continually reminded of Mean Streets, that great but low-budget fictional 1973 Martin Scorsese movie starring a then-little-known Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro as very low-level New York City gangsters, and which really captures the grubbiness of the era very well. Also streaming on Netflix, but available from the library too as a DVD, Mean Streets remains fairly unique in its focus, not on mob bosses, as in the Godfather films or even the Sopranos, but on the small-time so-called street soldiers, the people before Rico that law enforcement went after because they couldn't touch the bosses. In Mean Streets, Keitel plays Charlie, a guilt-ridden young New York City wise guy trying to play on his association with his uncle, a relatively high-ranking mobster from the old country, in order to move up in the organization. But he becomes exasperated by having to look out for his crazily self-destructive cousin, Johnny Boy, played by an electrifyingly charismatic Robert De Niro, who's here almost completely unrecognizable from the fat cat Hollywood actor of today. And Johnny Boy, he owes money to everyone in the movie, including one dourly resentful mafiosa who is quickly losing patience with him. Naturally, things do not work out well for anyone. Only his third ever feature-length movie, Mean Streets is the one that put Scorsese on the cinematic map, so to speak, and helped establish several characteristic styles and thematic elements that would go on to define Scorsese movies for many years to come. You know, 
a gritty urban setting, explosive, usually unpredictable violence, Catholic guilt, of course, noirish realism, racial tension, rock and roll on the soundtrack, the presence of Robert De Niro, and more. The movie's lean, blazing energy is still pretty astounding to see today. And the rough, documentary-like New York City street scenes are terrific and truly resonant of that world documented in Fear City. And Scorsese's pioneering use of popular music in Mean Streets is genuinely thrilling, though much imitated in the decades since. And all of it remains a far cry from the wealth, romantic mythology, and old world glamour so often associated with gangster films. So much so that you can't help but feel that with Mean Streets, Scorsese gets the grubby reality of it all exactly right. Although Martin Scorsese has worked across a number of diverse film genres throughout his 50-plus year career, including documentary, comedy, romance, musicals, psychological thrillers, biblical and historical epics, and even children's fantasy, to many of us, he remains most closely associated with his mob movies, including, in addition to Mean Streets, Goodfellas from 1990, Casino from 1995, Gangs of New York, made in 2002, and The Departed in 2006. So it's understandable, I guess, that with his most recent film, the post-war gangster epic The Irishman, made for and available to stream on Netflix, was met last year with so much anticipation and attention, which is arguably the most of any film he's ever made. Now, based on Charles Brandt's 2003 nonfiction book of dubious veracity, it must be said, and entitled, I Heard You Paint Houses, the Irishman traces the life of union leader turned hitman Frank Sheeran, played in the film by Robert De Niro, including Sheeran's supposed involvement in the 1975 disappearance of Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino. Now, we don't yet know, of course, but the Irishman appears to be, in both its length at three and a half hours, and in its really quite sober gravitas, something of a capstone to Scorsese's multi-film presentation and examination of the mob. Most likely, I would think this will be his final major work in the gangster genre, given both the filmmaker's advanced age at 77, as well as his wide-ranging interests, including such upcoming projects as the adaptations of the period, true crime but gangsterless books, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Devil in the White City, as well as a biopic of Theodore Roosevelt. But The Irishman itself reunites Scorsese with De Niro, as well as Joe Pesci, for the first time since Casino, nearly 25 years ago. Pesci himself has been nominated three times for Oscars in the Best Supporting Actor category, all for Scorsese, winning for Goodfellas in 1991. 
But unlike those earlier films, The Irishman has a much more reflective, even meditative quality about it than we are used to seeing in most other gangster movies, including the earlier Scorsese ones. Scorsese himself has said about The Irishman that the characters are older, and it's certainly more about looking back, a retrospective, so to speak, of a man's life and the choices that he has made in living it. So, very much unlike Mean Streets, for example, I would say, and definitely with a statelier, more mythic, and, as Scorsese said himself, retrospective quality than in his earlier, much more hyperkinetic and rough-hewn mobster movies. Which, uh, people often forget, sometimes play, as in the words of crime writer Zach Vasquez, as kind of workplace comedies with higher-than-normal stakes. They can be very funny, those movies. And indeed, I would say that The Irishman is much closer to the elegiac tone, if not in fact the tragedy of Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather series, or Sergio Leone's grand historical epic, Once Upon a Time in America. Mob scholar, author, and Goodfellas casino screenwriter Nicholas Pileggi probably first brought attention to such connections on the audio commentary for the DVD of Casino, stating about these earlier gangster films that, and I quote, they're like a trilogy. Mean Streets was just kids. Goodfellas was like the kids from Mean Streets growing up, becoming the middle class. But Scorsese was also fascinated by the top world of the mob, and that, of course, was Casino. End quote. I'd mostly agree with that statement, except I'd say that Casino deals mostly with the upper middle class of the mob world, whereas it is in the Irishman that we have a greater concern with its ruling class and ties to legitimate political power. I like what Vasquez has to say about this, that for all the obvious crossover in Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, and The Irishman, including recurring cast members, editing, visual style, use of voiceover narration, soundtrack, especially the use of the Rolling Stones, and thematic resonance. This quartet of Scorsese gangster films also comprise something of an overarching narrative, one which looks at the concept of organized crime not as a violent outlier or unintended byproduct of modern capitalism, but as essentially one and the same thing. And I think, you know, that's why gangster films have been so popular throughout the history of cinema, and not just in the United States. We recognize their world as like, however exaggerated and however metaphorical, versions 
of our own. And that the films within this Scorsese quartet may depict the rise and fall of this or that particular criminal group and this or that individual anti-hero at the center of it, taken as a whole, they chart the steady ascent and unbroken legitimization of crime within the fabric of American life, all the while looking at how it mirrors that most American of dreams, upward social mobility. Now, how does that work? In Mean Streets, we follow a close-knit group of small-time criminals and low-rent hustlers who are only a couple of steps and a few years removed from being kids on the playground. In effect, they treat the street as one big playground, frequently fighting each other over such things as pocket change, pranks, and schoolyard insults. Now, it has been observed by Vasquez and others that the great theme running throughout all these Scorsese gangster films is that human beings are entirely disposable in the face of great wealth and power. Because certainly the characters in Mean Streets who find themselves on the lowest rung of the criminal ladder are pretty disposable themselves. But in Goodfellas, the neighborhood punks of Mean Streets have moved out of the neighborhood, so to speak, and up a couple of rungs on the ladder. And as a result, their lifestyle becomes flashier and their appetites expand alongside their privilege. But in the end, it's all shown to be an ugly facade. And for all that flash and all that exciting lifestyle, they continue to live paycheck to paycheck or score to score, as it were, while struggling and failing to build any kind of nest egg for their future. Now, still following Vasquez here, if Goodfellas shows what happens when the kids from Mean Streets move from minimum wage work, so to speak, to a salaried position, again, metaphorically, of course, Casino shows what happens to those same middle-aged middle manager gangsters when they get promoted to a kind of executive status, by which point it's barely even a metaphor anymore. Casino explicitly looks at the way crime goes corporate, becoming legitimate, during the rise of Las Vegas, starting in the early 1970s. This world is no less violent or corrupt than those previously depicted by Scorsese. In fact, it's worse on both fronts. The violence and corruption accelerating at the same pace as the wealth surrounding it all. It's just that everyone is so distracted by the ungodly amounts of money pouring in on an hourly basis that they take even less notice of the carnage all around them. Until, of course, they themselves get destroyed by it too. Nicholas Pileggi referred to Casino as depicting the upper echelon of organized crime. And while that's true, I mean, they're dealing with sums of money in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But even the people in the innermost circle in Casino still serve at the behest of mysterious people further up the food chain. And even after the federal government clears out the obvious criminal element in the Las Vegas depicted in Casino, and as demonstrated analogously in the real-life documentary Fear City, I might add, regarding New York City, the framework of that world continues to operate almost exactly the same way, with total impunity, if not quite the same overt violence as before. But by this point, the mob, or at least substantial elements of it, has become legitimate. And that's the world that the Irishman immerses us in, however tangentially, through its titular character. 
The really, really big crooks lie elsewhere, on Wall Street for one, and in political offices throughout the land, which I don't think is much of an exaggeration to say is the natural and logical endpoint to the saga that Scorsese started telling the world all the way back in 1973 with Mean Streets. That's the Martin Scorsese movies Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and Casino all available to stream from various sources, as well as to borrow from the library as both DVDs and Blu-ray discs. The Irishman, like Mean Streets, is available on Netflix, though not yet on DVD or Blu-ray. On Tuesday, July 28th, beginning at 8 p.m., Turner Classic Movies is featuring a series of five films in tribute to comedy legend Carl Reiner, the writer, director, and actor who passed away recently and whom I spoke about on an earlier installment of Lockdown Viewing. Beginning at 8 p.m. on Tuesday is Enter Laughing, the semi-autobiographical 1967 comedy that Reiner had based on his early life as a Depression-era New Yorker. In the film, he is named David Kolowitz and played by Rennie Santoni, who, a character who decides to pursue an acting career against the wishes of his parents, most notably his mother, Shelley Winters, born to play a mother, as well as his girlfriend, played by Janet Margolin. Now, despite this opposition, David manages to land a non-paying role in an off-Broadway show directed by an over-the-hill character, played by Jose Ferrer. And despite his lack of experience, sets out to prove that he has what it takes to make it in showbiz. You know, Enter Laughing is, I think, my favorite among all the Carl Reiner movies. Because I think, like his very best work, it's, it's really big-hearted, pricelessly charming, and certainly not to be missed. After that, at 10 p.m. is All of Me, a pleasing bit of insanity from 1984 with Steve Martin as a lawyer whose body is literally invaded by the soul of a recently deceased client played hilariously by Lily Tomlin. Then comes the wonderful, if relatively little known, the comic from 1969 with, with uh, writer's close friend, lifelong close friend, Dick Van Dyke as a brilliant silent film comedian brought down by his ego and inability to adapt to changing times, but who suddenly finds himself the rediscovered of a kind in the 1960s and enjoying a revival of sorts in television commercials. Now, containing quite a few funny sequences, the comic is essentially, if uncharacteristically, a drama. And some critics have claimed the story is based on the life of silent comedian Buster Keaton. And those, and certainly those familiar with Keaton will definitely see the similarities. Following the comic comes the relatively scabrous but frequently hilarious Where's Papa from 1970 about a New York City lawyer played by George Siegel who must deal with an unhinged mother, another one this time played by Ruth Gordon, as well as a peculiar love life and other big city troubles. 
And then after that is Oh God from 1970 with George Burns in the title role. And unquestionably, this is one of Rainer's wittiest, most uh, warm-hearted and certainly popular movies. It really was a sensation when it came out in, did I say 1970? Forgive me, I meant 1977. So get your PVRs ready and set to record. That's a program of five Carl Reiner movies starting at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, July 28th on Turner Classic Movies. Anyway, I better wind it up. That's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next Friday for more recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library itself at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Hello, my name is Farah Mohammed, and welcome to another musical moment. Now here's an interesting fact. Did you know that today is self-care day? Hmm, I'm liking this already. Actually, July 24th is International Self-Care Day, an opportunity to raise awareness about self-care and the important role it plays in leading a healthy lifestyle. Self-care is about taking care of yourself and making choices that help your physical, mental, and emotional health, like eating healthy, getting enough sleep, and exercising. Feeling exhausted or overwhelmed can be a sign of experiencing burnout, a problem that is more common than you might think. The truth is, for many of us, we are tired and wired all at the same time. Digital technology has revolutionized almost every aspect of people's lives in recent decades, from office work and shopping to entertainment and leisure, to the interconnectedness we have with each other through emails, texts, and social platforms. These are just some of the areas that have been transformed by technology. However, it can also make you feel like you always have to be switched on which most definitely can take its toll. And imagine this was life before the pandemic. Nowadays, in these COVID times, it is even more important to take care of our physical, mental, and emotional health. Feelings of worry, distress, and anxiety are normal experiences and can be expected during a major event like the current pandemic. At times like this, It is important that we pay attention to how we are feeling and look after ourselves and those around us. While self-care may bring visions of mani-pedis, deep tissue massages, or lounging poolside sipping exotic drinks, it's really just the important practice of checking in with yourself and asking yourself what you need to feel your best on any given day. Now, of course, it goes without saying that listening to music has a positive effect on stress reduction. So, in honor of Self-Care Day, 
we will listen to a few tunes that relate to taking care of oneself. And I'll guarantee you might even feel a little bit better afterwards. Our first number is sung by the easy, breezy, sultry voice of Edie Gourmet. Edie Gourmet was an American singer who had hits on the pop and Latin pop charts. She sang solo with her husband, crooner Steve Lawrence, on albums, television, Broadway, and in Las Vegas. And here's an interesting fact. Gourmet was the first cousin to renowned singer-songwriter and pianist Neil Sedaka. What talent in that family. Here she is, singing the 1928 hit song, Button Up Your Overcoat, a popular song written by Ray Henderson and Lou Brown. This feel-good number stresses the importance of taking good care of yourself. Button up your overcoat When the wind is free Take good care of yourself You belong to me Eat an apple every day Get to bed no later than three Take good care of yourself You belong to me Be careful crossing streets Don't eat me Cut out sweet You get a pain and ruin your tum-tum Keep away from bootleg hooch When you're on a spree Take good care of yourself You belong to me Please think of me Take care of yourself Stay up on that shelf And baby Take care of yourself You belong to me Here's a high-octane number in the form of a funky 12-bar blues, complete with a full-on brass accompaniment. The lyrics has the singer exulting in how he feels, and I quote, nice like sugar and spice, now that he's found the one he loves. Here is James Brown singing I Feel Good, arguably his best-known recording. Sugar looks 
recognizable rich gravelly voice Louis Daniel Armstrong was an influential singer skillful improviser excellent trumpeteer and all-round monumental figure in the history of jazz just hear how he bends the lyrics and melody in this next song whether he plays the trumpet or sings his unique phrasing and sense of musical style is utterly original La Vie en Rose was the signature song of popular French singer Edith Piaf, written in 1945. However, by 1950, it became popularized in the U.S. thanks to the artistry of the great Satchmo. And, as I like to think, in lieu of today's theme, treat yourself well, and life will always be La Vie en Rose. Thank you. 
says the magic spell you cast. This is love, the When you kiss me, heaven sighs, and though I close my eyes, I see love and When you press me to your heart, and in a world apart, a world where roses bloom, and when you speak, angels sing from above. Every day, void seems to turn into love song. Give your heart and soul to me, and life will always bleed. Love they say, is the best form of exercise, and it does the body good to get your 10,000 steps in daily. Breathing in the fresh air, admiring nature, and stopping to smell the roses not only does wonders for the body, but for the soul as well. So let's delight in this fun and frothy number, Walking on Sunshine, by British-American rock band Katrina and the Waves.
While beer and wine are perfectly respectable beverages for relaxing after dinner or enjoying some downtime on a hot summer's day, sipping cool and refreshing cocktails and ice-cold summer drinks are the perfect addition to any lazy weekend afternoon. From the sweet, fruity, and fizzy drinks to something a little stronger, there's always something to suit everyone's taste. Which brings to mind this next selection, Rum Boogie, sung by the Andrews Sisters. Oh, Harlem's got a brand new rhythm and it's burning up the dance halls because it's so hot. They took a little Roomba rhythm, then they added boogie boogie, and now look what they've got. Rum boogie, rum boogie woogie. It's Harlem's new creation with the Cuban syncopation, it's the killer. Rum boogie, rum boogie woogie. The native rhythm haunts you, it's barbaric and it haunts you, it's the killer. Just plant your both feet on each side, lift both your hips and shoulders glide. Then throw your body back and ride. There's nothing like rum boogie, rum boogie woogie. In Harlem or Havana, in Poughkeepsie or Savannah, it's the killer. Oh, beat me, Daddy. driving rhythms and jungle beats, this next toe-tapping number will guarantee to put you in a joyful, happy mood. This is a popular big band era jazz standard recorded by American band leader Glenn Miller. So put on your dancing shoes, roll back the rug, and grab a partner, because you'll definitely be in the mood. Thank you. 
you've enjoyed today's feel-good selection. Although we acknowledge self-care day today, it's important more than ever to practice self-care every day. So, find out what makes you happy, achieve balance in your life, be grateful for the small things, learn to say no, make time for your passionate pursuits, or do nothing at all if that's what makes you happy. We are all deserving of a good life. Happy listenings. Bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Cote St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and to our speakers, and thanks to you for listening today. If you happen to be listening to this as a podcast, uh, why don't you leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating and review helps others find the show. Have a great day. Have a great day.